This podcast series is supported by members at Patreon. If you want to support this podcast series, head to patreon.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. In our current state of craft beer in the Pacific Northwest, it's easy to forget that not too long ago, things were very different. There were only a few brands which pretty much all made the same beer. There came a point where some craft beer pioneers had enough and took on the establishment, persuaded the government to change the laws, and laid the groundwork to make the industry what it is today. Welcome to the Cascadian Beer Podcast. My name's Aaron, and I'm a Cascadian. I have a background in radio and television broadcasting. I'm a music producer, and I have a passion for beer. I don't consider myself to be an expert in beer by any means, but I do enjoy and respect the craft and the passion of these brewmasters. I want to learn from these pioneers on what sets them apart from the rest, and why they choose to call Cascadia their home. Cascadia is a bioregion in the Pacific Northwest on the North American continent. It is made up of the U.S. states of Washington and Oregon, as well as the Canadian province of British Columbia. In this podcast series, I'll be profiling the unique breweries of Cascadia, a region that has a strong presence on the international beer scene. In this episode, I'm in British Columbia's capital, Victoria. Here in the 1980s, a dramatic shift started where the major beer makers in Canada would start to see competition from small groups of individuals wanting to change the market and bring beer with more variety of flavor to it. I've come to the oldest brew pub in Canada, Spinnaker's. My name is Paul Hatfield. And your title? I'm the um, president of Spinnaker's, publican, innkeeper, mm-hmm. dishwasher, <laughs> dishwashing fixer. And how long has Spinnaker's been in existence? We've been operating since May of 1984, so we're 32 and a bit. And you're kind of your own self-sustained community out here almost, because you have the guest houses, you have the bakery in there, as well as the brewery. Yeah. Which came first? Uh, we came here to make beer. That was back in the day when a beer is a beer is a beer is a beer because the beers were all made by the um, what are now multinationals and they all tasted the same. They had a bunch of different brands, but I think if people put blindfolds on, they would have no idea what they were doing. But they were very, very um, aligned to their brands. Brand loyalty was a huge thing back then. They just all tasted the same. You were the first brew pub here in Victoria to do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, we are the oldest brew pub in the country. We were second to be developed. Uh, the story behind Spinnaker's goes back to uh, June of 1982 when John Mitchell opened up a little brewery down the street from the Troller Pub in Horseshoe Bay. And that was really the game changer that um, led to uh, what we're seeing today in the explosion of craft beer in Canada. So the story leading up to that time was that there was a series of rotating beer strikes that uh, became quite normal through the late 70s. And I think that 
um, what happened was the government just got pissed off about it. And the um, minister who was responsible for liquor control and licensing branch threw back a challenge at John who had been bugging him because John wanted to get a brewing license because he objected to the sameness and the blandness and so forth of, of the beer at the time. With the last strike that happened in, I guess it was 81, Peter Hyman threw a challenge at John said, so how quickly can you get something open? So John opened his, his brewery down the street from the Troller Pub in June of 1982. And uh, by the, the late summer, it became very apparent what the deficiencies were and what the challenges were. When when you're making craft beer in an industrial beer marketplace, beer with flavor, it's important that the beer be good, the beer be consistent. Um, and John was just challenged with equipment issues that made those kinds of things very difficult in a much less than ideal setup. So we became aware of what John was doing Pretty quickly, because he got quite a bit of media out of it. A buddy of mine, Ray Jennifer in Victoria, who's an accountant, called me one day and, and said that I should go check out what John was doing and that we should talk to John and see if maybe there might be an opportunity to do something in Victoria. John took off for UK in August of 1982 um, in search of equipment. And he came back at the end of September with some ideas for equipment. And he came back with a suitcase full of beer. We gathered one evening um, at a pub in a residential basement in Dunbar out by UBC in the west side of Vancouver. And um, we, with um, I guess half a dozen beer aficionados, set about tasting these beers that John had brought back with him. And we drank our way through, I think it was two bottles each of 14 different kinds uh, which was followed up by half a dozen examples of some North American beers that were not typical in our marketplace, which was then followed up by the homebrew that these other chaps in the room had brought with them. And two things became abundantly clear to me that evening. Uh, first of all, here was this huge range of flavors that other than jumping on a plane and flying across the pond to Europe or UK, we just had no access to. And secondly, the best beer that we drank that night was made by the home brewers. So that told me that we had the technology in the room and that this was just a really cool idea. And it was one of those eureka moments. The light bulb went on. It became apparent to me coming out of there that evening that my job as an architect was to take on the developer role and to go about finding a place where we could build a purpose-built ground-up brew pub, the first brew pub of the modern era in the country. And essentially from that night until opening day, we describe it as 18 months of pig-headed determination that we would not take no for an answer. We simply viewed no as they don't understand what we're trying to accomplish and we'll find a workaround and, and make it happen. It was really just eight months or 18 months of let's just get her done. Over the process of, of that 18 months, we managed to create uh, new zoning bylaws in the city of Victoria. We did a new area plan for Vic West where we wanted to house this thing. We created new regulations for brew pubs in the province of British Columbia. And we went so far as to get the Federal Excise Act amended to enable the manufacture and sale of an excise commodity out of the same premise. So um, thereby laying the groundwork for 
brew pubs to exist in Canada. With all that, was there kind of a bit of pushback from the provincial government or the federal government at that time? Because he said that, you know, John kind of had the supporting role from the minister at that point. When you came to Victoria and said, hey, do we want to do this? Was council like all over it? Like, yes, go ahead. Like, let's make this happen. Or was was that a bit of a fight? Well, I walked into the planning department and I introduced myself and told them what we wanted to do. And, and they just politely said, oh, we don't allow that here. So I went down the hall and those were back in the days of pay phones. And I started plugging quarters in and phoning people that I knew because I'd grown up in Victoria. I, I think the, the, the long and short of it was that the feedback from council was that they would uh, support a well-founded proposal from some credible people. And the challenge was nimbyism. And uh, we were challenged to go out and find a location in a neighborhood that didn't exist as a neighborhood, and as such, there wouldn't be neighbors who would complain about what we wanted to do, which would make council's life really easy. And then those who chose to move in around us would have done so on their own volition, so there'd be no complaining from them. So the next step was to take it to the director of planning, and I um, set up an appointment and walked into his office, and I was um, greeted with this um, across-the-desk little lecture of uh, you know, we, we don't like people from the big city coming over here and telling us what to do. I informed him that I had actually grown up in Victoria, at which point he stood up and reached across the desk and shook my hand and said, welcome back, son. <laughs> Just as easy as that. <laughs> uh, Victoria is a small town, um, and small towns have some great advantages and they have some challenges. And one of the great advantages in a small town is that I happened to come from a respectable family. My father was a career civil servant who'd risen up through the ranks and is a very, very nonpartisan individual. So it was not that difficult for me as an individual, as a professional, to go in and, and seek approval. It was a matter of diplomacy. Uh, it was a matter of credibility. And we just had to build on those kinds of things and make it happen. We also um, had some fun with John because John was such a an English character. He fit into some of the stereotypes of what some people thought Victoria was at that time, and and he was a good story. So um, he was fun to dress up and bring into some meetings, and he had some good lines. And um, uh, clearly, what we were doing was was something that had never been contemplated. Um, I I think one of the things that worked in our favor was that. In 1980 or maybe 81, Labatt's um, demolished uh, what should have been a heritage brewery in Victoria. Um, and so there was backlash against Labatt's for that. There was a problem from the mayor's perspective that Victoria no longer had a brewery. And to be credible, a town should have a brewery. Uh, so he wholeheartedly supported what we were doing, although I'm not sure that, that what we actually came through with in the end was what he imagined a brewery to be. I think we're a little bit small for that kind of thing, but we certainly captured the public's imagination in the process. And so you said it was hard sourcing equipment because, you know, there just wasn't the market for it in Canada at the time. Well, nobody built equipment like that in North America then. John found um, this package plant from a company in Ramsbottom outside Manchester in the UK, a company called SPR Manufacturing. And we still use that equipment today. There's a sister plant to ours 
uh, was brought in later that summer and ended up in the Fort Garry Hotel in Winnipeg. The Fort Garry Hotel being more of a old school beer bar. The notion of the brewery there didn't work. And, and I, I lost track of that equipment. I don't know where it ended up. But we still use the stuff today. Our brewing team would like me to switch to um, something larger, which we need to do, and um, something that's not electric fired because we just have ongoing issues with elements and burning them out and, you know, the sugars carbonizing on them. And so it's a, it's a bit more work, but it's what it is. So tell me about that first brew then. You had everything here, the building existed, it's built, it's ready to go, but you got you to make beer now. Well, the fact that we have to make beer now is, is really kind of succinct in, in that uh, we're not allowed to make beer until we have a liquor license granted to us. So I, as the guy who was playing the developer role, pushing relentlessly to get this thing done, to get the door open, to reverse the cash flow and try and get something positive happening, uh, was just super stoked on the early afternoon of May 15th when um, the guy who was our liquor inspector, having been in at 11 o'clock that morning to interview us to see if we were uh, suitable candidates to hold a liquor license in BC, uh, he called about 2 o'clock and said, you can come pick up your license, which absolutely shocked all of us. So I took off to get the license and John took off to the government liquor store to get some booze. And our accountant partner took off to the the bank to set up some petty cash. And we managed to get a cash register running by about four o'clock. And, you know, these were the days before social media. We actually were packed out that night by people coming in the door, plugging a quarter in the payphone, telling their friends they need to come down. And it was awesome. We sold 1200 bucks that night. That was our worst day ever. So it was kind of fun. But we couldn't start making beer until the next day. So whilst I think that the opening day was May 15th, uh, you'll read on the sign above the door coming into the pub that uh, it's dated June 16th. And that would be the first date that our beer was actually ready to put on tap. The date which John felt we then became a brew pub. So the first beers, I was absolutely determined that you can't open a brew pub with only one beer because what you do when you do that is you set up expectations amongst the patrons that that's what your beer is. And you allow people to have that opportunity to say, I don't like your beer. So we opened with um, what was called Spinnaker's Ale, which was a, um, a pale ale. Uh, we had another beer called Sandwichton Bitter, which on opening night, my brother-in-law renamed, he went up to the chalkboard and he just scrubbed out Sandwichton and um, wrote in Mitchell's ESB instead. And that's a beer we still make today. And we also had a Dark Mild, uh, a beer called Mount Tommy Dark. And very shortly thereafter, we added a, a fourth beer uh, called Empress Stout. So in those days, we only had three fermenters. Getting three beers out um, a month after opening was as fast as we could do it. It took emptying the fermenters after a week to be able to get the fourth beer into production, uh, which was why that little bit of a lag happened. Uh, but certainly the opportunity in a brew pub is to make a multitude of beers. What I find astonishing out there in the marketplace is that so many small breweries and brew pubs make a core of three or four beers. 
to me, that's just a lost opportunity. When you make beer in sort of um, an eight hectoliter batch, the controlling point, the area where you kind of backlog and all this stuff is in your aging serving tanks. So by simply adding more tanks and more cooler space, you open up the opportunity for a diversity of flavors. And what we learned over time was that the diversity of flavors is what the real attraction is. So today we've got 20 taps on each floor, plus some nitro taps, plus um, some wine taps and some cider taps. Today I view the brew pub as uh, the source where you go to because beer is always best at the source. Um, and our competition is not the other brew pubs or local breweries. It's the craft beer bars, uh, the, the places that have got, you know, 20, 30, 40 taps offering this multitude of products from around the neighborhood, around the region, around the world, except that by being local, uh, you offer freshness. You offer that, that just opportunity to have beer in its peak performance or peak condition. So it's very fun. So those first beers that you did, were those uh, like Castales, you know, on hand pump, given uh, your partner's uh, English heritage? Uh, the first ones um, came out of bright tanks. Uh, so the way, the way we're set up is that the grain came, off of, came out of um, a shipping container. It was forklift up to the top floor where the grain loft was and the mill is. It fell by gravity into the mash tun. Uh, we used pumps to move it around in the brew house, and it went down to the cellar. In the cellar, which was on the floor below the bar, we used bright tanks instead of kegs, and we hand-pumped from the bright tanks. So although it wasn't cask, it was pretty close to what cask is. We were just using the brights as serving vessels at the time. So very not carbonated, very traditional ales at the time. We also had some casks. On Friday afternoon, we would um, move a cask uh, that was dry hopped up onto the bar about five o'clock as a treat for the regulars. And we quickly learned that if we made it four o'clock, we could get them to skip work early uh, because the cask didn't last very long. Uh, to this day, we run a cask program like that five days a week, Monday to Friday, which we call hoppy hour. But today we also serve through beer engines, choice of three different cask condition beers at the upstairs bar. So very much respecting that cask tradition. And um, I just, I, f I find it fascinating to be able to go into a place and essentially taste a beer served in a variety of ways. So cask conditioned, uh, regular out of the tank and bottle conditioned or just bottled. They're all different. They all have their own characteristics. And um, I think that's part of the fun of the whole game is the ability just to explore flavor. So what is the total size of your first system that you did? And has there been any expansion of the system since then? Well, we opened with essentially an eight hectoliter length and three fermenters. We quickly added a fourth fermenter. Uh, we then followed that with two double length fermenters, followed by um, a third double length fermenter, followed by, we ran out of space at that point. So we, we started putting fermenters in the parking lot. And the first two we added um, held three brews each and the, the next two held four brews each. Uh, so we've um, vastly increased our fermentation capabilities. How long did it take for the community to become your regulars here? Like oh, Within the first week. That, that's all it took was the first week. There was that much demand from the, from the community. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that the beer was the only reason for all of that. 
Um, back in the in the early '80s, bars were typically affiliated with hotels in BC. They were in hotel basements, or they were accessed off the parking lots. They were windowless affairs. Typically, had stages and dancers and round tables with terry cloth tops on them and, and there's plenty of those places that still exist and um, you know the the waiter come around and he just dropped 10 or 12 glasses on the table and and that's what beer was and and we set about to change that culture john was extremely passionate about beer and as an architect and and you know wanting to be social entrepreneur in the process i wanted to change what bars were when you go to open a, a brew pub, the license format that we chose to use, which was the neighborhood pub, because we really didn't want to get into the hotel business just to make beer, we were only allowed 65 seats. And that was our sole opportunity to generate revenue, was what we could sell to whoever occupied one of those 65 seats. And if we had 66 people in, the liquor inspector would write us up and they'd drag us in for a hearing for what was called overcrowding. And so clearly what we were witnessing was pushback from industry. It's the hotel industry, it was the pub industry, it was the restaurant industry, supported by Big Beer, who were not particularly enthusiastic about the format that we were developing. What we really needed to do in order to fill the seats all the time was we had to look at non-conventional time frames. If you're running a bar, if you can't fill it after work or if you can't fill it in the evening, you should just go home. But what we needed to do is we needed to extend those hours. We needed to do dinner trade. And back in those days, food in a bar was a bag of chips or just a scary looking egg floating in brine on the bar top or maybe some kind of macerated meat rolling around on something that went into a bun. Food was not particularly good. So we set out to put in essentially restaurant quality food. We chose to give the food the same kind of weight as one would give to the bar. So in terms of the design and layout of the place, in, in the same way that in a typical bar scenario, one sits down at the bar or goes up to the bar and has a chat with a bartender, we had an open kitchen because we wanted to create that dialogue between the patron and the cook. And so a patron coming into our place would go to the kitchen bar and order some food and then head to the bar. And if the bartender was any good and the guy was any sort of a regular, his pint would be sitting there waiting for him at that point. He would pick it up and then head off and find his mates and um, have fun and wait for his food order to be ready, at which point the cook would yell it out across the room, at which point the guy would have to come up and pick up his food. Um, we'd hit the condiment bar and dress it up with whatever and then head back to the seat. And So we had this, this great dynamic happening within the room of how it functioned. And so we, we quickly developed a very strong dinner trade and a very strong lunch trade partly because our food cost of sales was extraordinarily high. Uh, something that we did because we were getting some pushback in the neighborhood because we were so successful. The neighbors were all of a sudden 
um, not particularly enchanted with the amount of traffic in the area. <laughs> and, and then the last group that we needed to get were the people who would have free time in the middle of the afternoon. And that was part of our decision to seek out a waterfront location with south-facing patios. And patios were a new invention at that time. And uh, we had to do sketches for the liquor inspector to show that people who were sitting inside or sitting on the patio by virtue of the railings could not actually be seen by the people walking by on the pathway because it was not appropriate to be able to look inside a bar in those days and see who was inside. So it was um, ultimately because of all of those things together, I think it became a huge attraction. We had lots of help. My, my mother was one of our biggest supporters, and she brought somebody different for lunch every day for three weeks. And it was very much that word-of-mouth thing that just caught fire. We were very unique. We were very different. We offered just things that nobody else in the marketplace was doing. And, and at, at this point, as I reflect back, we really gave rise to the whole notion of the pub-style restaurant in British Columbia. I'm in conversation with Paul Hadfield, the president of Spinnaker's Brew Pub in Victoria, B.C., after a few years of operating, word started to spread that there was something new and exciting going on up north. Beer enthusiasts started flocking to Victoria to see what this brew pub was and what they were doing. At the same time, the government refused to increase the seating license for Spinnakers, but gave them a surprising alternative, which would end up as a fight in BC's Supreme Court. One of our partners, Ray Jennifer, was very, very interested in business development and what we were doing and what to do with it. We had a lot of people pilgrimage to our place. In 1986, in April of 1986, uh, there was a tour bus came to our place from Portland as a pre or post conference tour from American Craft Brewers Conference. That was how far they had to go back then from Portland to find a brew pub. With the kind of intrigue that was going on, uh, Ray was all about developing a franchise concept, cashing in on the enthusiasm that surrounded us. And because government in British Columbia would not allow us to become involved in other ventures, the rules at that point were one at a time and two in your lifetime uh, in terms of neighborhood pubs. We were forced to seek opportunities out of province. And it seemed that the, the interest at the time was out of the States and the closest beachhead was Seattle. Uh, so we went to Seattle and opened a couple of brew pubs down there in 1988. Long story short was after three years, I, I became convinced that we're very different than Americans. I had little kids and I just made a personal decision that I didn't want to travel anymore. We had a house on Green Lake in Seattle and you know, a house in Victoria and property on the river out in Souk. And I just didn't have enough time to go around and I couldn't see myself becoming more and more spread across the landscape. So we came home. We extricated ourselves from what we were doing down there. And for me, the, the opportunity, the challenge was, so one takes all of this creative energy and what happens when you take it and focus it and you put it in one place and you see where you can go and you see what you can do with it, how we can make this thing evolve and where we can push this game and where we can take it to at the end of the day. Government in response to our oh, constant uh, search for greater revenue opportunities refused at first to give us 
the extra seating capacity that we were seeking, but kind of blindsided us by saying that, okay, you can sell your product in package form if you want, which would mean we could bottle it and people could take it away, which wasn't enormously exciting to me at first, but it became an opportunity that we needed to develop. The challenge being that government also controlled the retail liquor stores, and they refused to put our product in the store. So one branch of government says, okay, you can do this. And another branch of government that controls the marketplace said, we don't want your product. So we ended up having to take the Minister of Tourism, Culture, and Small Business, who at that point controlled liquor control and licensing portfolio, as far as the Supreme Court in BC to force them to carry our product. Either that or give us back all the tax money we were paying, because clearly we were paying the same markups as production breweries were, but we weren't getting access to market. And obviously, part of the revenue that was derived from the taxation went to support the warehousing distribution and retail activities of taking product to market. So it was either give us our cash back or give us access. And at the end of the day, the Supreme Court judge should just lambasted the ministry for discriminating against us. But again, clearly it was big beer that was behind the initiative to keep us out of the marketplace. Having broken through that, uh, we then needed to learn what you have to do to become a packaging brewery. And um, it's something that we never pursued as vigorously as, as we might have. Some of our people who were working for us helping sell the beer just complained that we weren't aggressive enough. But I think the reality was that we, we just had a brewing team who were pretty happy doing what they were doing with on-premises stuff. And we had a bunch of equipment that was pretty well set up to do that. And we didn't really have enough space to get into packaging and warehousing and do the distribution thing. And, and if we were going to be successful, we ultimately had huge capacity issues. But then again, that bottling equipment just didn't exist at the time, right? Like, again, you had to go source bottling equipment from somewhere. There weren't the companies today that yep. go have mobile canning units or something that go to the breweries. Yeah, there, you know, it's interesting. The... The, the first advent of, of the mobile bottling line were some guys out of Washington State that came in and we tried to do a run with them. And by the time they got through customs, caught a ferry, got over here, uh, they didn't have enough time to do a full run for us before they had to pack up and leave and catch the ferry and go home again. So those kinds of mobile opportunities didn't work for us. And if we were going to do it, we had to do it all by ourselves. Ultimately, we figured it out. You know, it was an opportunity that we were fortunate enough to just be able to leave out there on the corner of the desk for some point in time when we really needed to do it or wanted to do it. A lot of our creative energy went into food back in the 90s. We became farm to table in the very, very early 90s. Uh, became part of our mantra. I guess, you know, I'm really intrigued today that in the last five years, Everybody wants to do farm to table. Everybody wants to do local. And it is absolutely just part of our story from, you know, 20 years, 25 years ago. And to us, it was very, very consistent with the notion of making in-house craft beer. It's artisan. It's hands-on. Know your producer. Know your materials. Be able to go and talk to the guy that made it or that grew it. And have that kind of relationship, that kind of care and concern over, you know, what, what we put in our bodies. It matters. It's it's huge. And it is so appropriate to the brew pub um, that 
you know, the, the notion of, of pulling, I was going to say shit, but I shouldn't, out of a box and throwing it on the freezer or throwing it in the fryer is just so irrelevant uh, to who we are and that we forget that that's the way so many people eat and it's so much part of the, the health issues that we face, you know, as a, as a nation, as North Americans. We're fortunate. We, we live in a very special place. We have a sub-Mediterranean climate. Southern Vancouver Island is emerging as a food region, the you know equivalent of Napa or Sonoma or Tuscany or Provence. And we refer to Napa and Sonoma as the moneyed guys, where that's what really matters. And Tuscany and Provence are all about tradition, and they're bound by it and held back by it. But we here in the New World have this remarkable freedom, luxury, to take these traditional methods and do what we do to them and, and create and make wonderful things. And it's the same with beer. So we refer to the people who came before us in UK and Europe as the, the keepers, the guardians of the styles. We get to go over there and taste the styles and raid the cabinet and come back and take them and twist them and do what we want. And, and um, I, I think it's part of the magic of regionalism that here in the Pacific Northwest, because we've got such great access to hops, that we've become known for such crazy good hoppy beers. And, and I think you're going to see the next explosion is in, in grains, you know, with the, the likes of Skagit Valley Malting and, and, you know, what they're doing with the universities to unlock the vaults and get at some of these heritage grains. The next generation of beers are going to be technicolor in terms of flavor compared to what we're used to. And there's even guys going great grain in the interior as well out in the Absolutely. Okanagan. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we did in the early 90s, I, along with Buko von Koizik, who had Okanagan Spring Brewery, Buko and I went to Heidelberg and bought a malting plant. And we crated it up and shipped it out here. And I designed a building that became Gambrinus Malting in Armstrong because we wanted at raw materials that were outside the jurisdiction of the wheat board in order to just get better flavors happening. So there's just so many opportunities, so much to do, so much fun to be had. And, you know, generally speaking, we, the consumers, are the beneficiaries of all this stuff. And you were saying that the whole farmer-to-table approach, you kind of feed into that cycle as well by giving your grains to local farmers as well, right? We have a, you know, all brewers have a problem. We need to get rid of the byproducts of production. The whole process of creating inputs from waste products or outputs just creates that circle. So we learned very early on that we could put our, our spent grains in the hands of farmers who would feed them to poultry or livestock, which we could then buy back. And they became our chicken, our turkey, our became our burgers. Um, and we've been doing that for 30 years. Where do you go from here? You're pretty well established. I mean, can you grow anymore? Yeah, we've just taken on a 20 thousand square foot warehouse that we really needed last year because um, we're packaging. Our packaging game is one of uh, seasonal releases um, and it really feeds into what we can do as, as a little tiny brew pub, uh, making small batches that we can create these exotic opportunities. Working with uh, farmers who um, are growing interesting things that can become additives for what we do. We try to create one or two new beers every month, um, which we uh, mostly take into package form, keeping back 
a, a tank or two for in-house sales, and we take them to market. One of the things that's been really fun has been the whole move backwards to putting beer in barrels. And we've got a barrel program going here uh, where we've got about 150 barrels in rotation. Um, and these are barrels that were formerly used for oh, making whiskey or making rye or making bourbon or making tequila, red wine, white wine. We've got a, a guy on, on our brewing team who was a winemaker for a decade. He, like many winemakers, just came to see that we're having more fun than they are. And again, it goes back to that tradition thing, that they're bound by tradition, they're bound by style, they're bound by terroir, and we're bound by the limits of imagination. So we get to play. Uh, we get to use the byproducts of what they'd used. Uh, we get to take their old barrels that are just steeped with uh, the flavors and the aromatics of what they did. And we get to put beers in them. And shorter turnaround time as well. Absolutely. And, and by using barrels instead of fooders like the big guys are doing, again, we just hasten that turnaround time. Um, and so we just get to make interesting stuff that's fun to play. And, you know, looking into the future, I wanted to make cider a couple of years ago because I, I just saw that cider is the new craft beer. Um, it, it works for all the, the glutoids who don't want to drink beer but are looking for fun. And cider is huge fun. And cider is relatively easy to make. But the bureaucrats decided that cider is a different license than a brewing license. So we had to take out a cider license, which is actually a winery license. So having now become a commercial winery within our brewery, uh, we make ciders and we do the same thing with ciders. We introduce cider to Brett. Uh, we uh, were at uh, Sheringham Distillery yesterday afternoon and picked up a bunch of their spent botanicals. And so we put the Sheringham Distillery gin botanicals into our cider and it's just absolutely delicious, um, refreshing. And, and it's just like a, a whole new set of um, paradigms that's set up that are, are just like huge fun. Um, it's, you know, just, we're just playing with people's taste buds and palates and doing cool things, having fun. So I mentioned you're, you kind of seem like a self-sustained community here because you have the guest houses and then everything else on site. When was all this added? The first guest house took place in the late 90s and it was a guy who ran a, a woodworking shop up the street. He came to me one day and said, you know, you should buy the house from Mrs. Nugent next door. Um, she's actually moving into an apartment somewhere. Mrs. Nugent was just this crusty old character who I always felt had been wronged by the city. Somehow her derelict house had been placed on a heritage list, and she was just feisty. She, she was a very much an Emily Carr kind of character, and absolutely everybody feared her in the neighborhood. And she, um, she just... She kind of roamed and had this wrath about her that was really quite humorous. Charlie, when he, when he mentioned to me that we should do this, I just said back to him, you know, give, give me a break. You got, you got the woodwork shop. The house is a wreck. Why don't you do it? And he said, well, you should really do a B&B. And I went, I don't think so. But curiosity got the better of me. And, and a couple of days later, I was 
sitting with one of our, our regulars at the bar, um, a guy named Paul Kelly, who ran a five-star B&B across the harbor in James Bay. So I, I pulled myself a, a pint of Kasky SB, and I sat down beside him. And so I said, so, Paul, talk to me. What happens when um, you know people come and stay with you? What's it cost you to clean the room in the morning after they leave? And he said, well, you know, I got these people on staff. This is what they do. They work with Elizabeth. And this is what it costs. And so, What's it cost you to feed them? I said, why are you asking me this? So I told him the story. And he said, that'll be another pint. And so anyway, two pints later, I had my Excel spreadsheet together. And we were at one of those junctures where we seem to hit the wall about every five to seven years and that we just can't squeeze enough food out of the kitchen. And it's time to knock down a wall and rearrange everything and get bigger. Uh, so I had a, a meeting set up with our banker, and I think I was looking for, I don't know, about 300000 to redo the kitchen at the time. And so I, I did my dance, and I laid all my numbers on the table for the guy, and he said, okay. And I said, what do you mean? He said, okay. And I said, like, so what does that mean? He said, we'll give you the money. Said, okay. So then I said, how about this? And I slid my guest house spreadsheet across the table at him and kind of looked at it and so I said, so what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to finance it. And he said, how much money are you going to put up? I said, well, I'm just asking you to finance my kitchen, so nothing. I want you to finance it. And he went, okay. That's how we got into it. We bought this derelict heritage house. I thought it had a foundation. It didn't. We lifted it up and put it on a foundation, stripped it to the outside skin, did um, a complete historic restoration to the building. We, we pulled all the trim off, took it out, had it stripped, uh, reproduced more from some first gross material that we got our hands on and put it back together. And, um, you know, one of the things going into it was that we had some really, really interesting characters who spent a lot of time in our pub. We later learned they didn't necessarily live in Victoria. They were coming and spending time with us for a few days. One just great character, a guy named Jan Nelson, who actually lived in Salt Lake City, and he, he taught at the university there. And Jan was a guy who had nine kids, and he liked to drink beer, and you don't really do that in Salt Lake City. So we were his getaway. And I would walk into the pub and, you know, about 11.20 in the morning, and somebody would be playing the piano, and I knew Jan was in town. So he would fly to Seattle. He would catch uh, what was Lake Union Air at the time, and he would arrive in the harbor, and he would um, come in and play the piano and have a pint or two. And then he would grab his bag and he'd head off to the Empress and check in and he'd stay for two or three nights. And then he learned that if instead of staying at the Empress, he stayed at the Strath, he could squeeze in an extra trip or two per year for the same kind of money. And then when he found out that we were putting in rooms, he, um, I got a call from the, from the front desk and, and somebody says, I got this guy named Jan Nelson on the phone. And, and he won't give me his credit card, but he wants to book a room. And I said, book him. Uh, he was just that kind of a, an ornery character who, uh, like so many people do, they take ownership. And that's what a good pub is, a place that the public owns, that they have rights to. And at the end of the day, we all understand who we work for, that we work for them. And it's their room. It's their public house. These are the people who have... Absolutely no fear telling us what we're doing good and what we're doing wrong. You know, I, I just feel so grateful over the years to have had 
such great relationships with so many characters who became aficionados of what we do and that care so deeply about what we do and about about beer and about food and about the ambience that sets up in a place that is all about those kinds of things. So what do you get most out of this? What do you enjoy most about having this place? I really, really enjoyed the relationships with these kinds of characters. And today, 30, well, I'm, you know, I'm almost 35 years into this project at this point. What I get, what I really, really enjoy today is I enjoy mentoring the people that come through. I'm absolutely in love with our staff. Um, they're all kids to me, um, even though there's a hundred of them. And uh, I, I'm, I have always constantly been amazed by the stories they come up with, the antics they pull, the joy that they get out of living in a public room. You know, I've got to, I've got to watch kids come in terrified of the public who walk out of here 10, 15 years later, just the most self-confident, um, happy individuals um, who are you know, just so well-equipped to take on the world and do whatever they want. We get to have relationships with people for a while. And some people it's a long while, some people it's a short while. I, I think we're, we're able to uh, provide people with an opportunity to grow outside of a formalized environment, um, outside of home, whereby they, they enjoy the values that we espouse and, and they align themselves with that and um, they become who they are. You know, we, we, um, we have an item at retail, they're, um, they're onesies and um, they're, they say on them, grown at spinnakers. We've had a lot of people come together, go off and have families together. Um, simply by working here. You know, ultimately it's seeing those kinds of relationships come out of um, a public house that at the end of the day is probably the most gratifying experience for me. Paul Hadfield, the president of Spinnaker's Brew Pub in Victoria, B.C. Since Paul has seen the craft beer industry in the Pacific Northwest from the beginning, I was interested to get his take on the way he currently sees things. I started by asking him if he thinks that we're at maximum capacity in terms of the number of breweries in certain areas of Cascadia, or does he think that we have still room to grow? Um, interesting observation. I, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to 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 go to the UBC School of Architecture, and I was fortunate enough to have prior to that worked for um, this guy named Harold Spence Sales, who was the um, head of the planning school at McGill. And these people taught me, ingrained in me, that. Um, it's unacceptable to simply accept the conventional because that's what it is. They beat into us the need to question, to challenge, to uh, come up with design solutions and whatever it is that we're doing that are better, that are more fun, that are more appropriate, that are more pleasing, that are just better for whatever reason. And to pursue the diversity, the opportunities that are out there, and and if they're not there, to create them. I laughed in in that recently at a in a conversation at at, at a, a BC Craft Brewers Guild meeting. Ken Beatty, who's the executive director, he, he he just commented that the one thing he knows about me is that I always swim upstream, and I you know I, I guess that's the case that 
when convention was so constrained and so dominated by a few players that it's necessary to do so. Um, that there's great joy, there's great satisfaction in changing the landscape, enabling others to come along and express their creativity. We were in conversation a couple of years ago at a meeting uh, with the Canadian Brewing Awards um, over at the Laurel Point in Victoria. And it was Gary Lowen and Matt Phillips and I in conversation. And I had commented what fun it was to watch the kind of the second generation of brewers coming through here now and what they were bringing in. And Matt corrected me and said, you know, that's not right. What we're seeing now are the third generation coming through that he and Gary were the second. They picked up on what we did. And now the people who are coming in in their early 20s are picking up on what they did. What we're experiencing is just how this opportunity is understood and appreciated and translated and put into practice by the brain trust of this disparate group of uh, people who are passionate and highly motivated about what the opportunities are. Each of us in our own way helps to express what the opportunities are. Um, And I have said for a very, very long time that putting a brewery in a pub is really no different than putting a kitchen in a restaurant. You can open a restaurant with no kitchen. You can take all this stuff out of a box that's frozen and you can throw it in a grill and you can pass it off as food. Or you can go out and find people who will grow stuff for you. And you can teach people how to cook with real ingredients. And you can make things that delight the public. Beer's the same. You can buy all your stuff from whoever the best marketing guy is who gives you the most free product for whatever you choose to purchase. And you can try to flog it off on your patrons who don't know better. Or you can go out and you can be innovative and you can do the work of a professional bartender or a merchant. You can seek out quality stuff from people who care. And you can bring that to the attention of of your patrons. One way is just easy. The other way involves work and passion and commitment and knowledge. But at the end of the day, the one who puts the energy in is the one who's going to be successful and whatever it is that they choose to do. So I think that the opportunity today is virtually unlimited. The opportunity for growth is unparalleled. Um, We've never seen a time like this. And I can't imagine that there is not an opportunity to take on, so what, we're 20% market share in BC right now? Oregon's 50. We can be there. There's, there's no question. And all it requires is, is that people have an opportunity. And I guess the, the really cool part today is that the barriers to entry, are they're gone. I mean, I, th- I think the whole game in this country changed three years ago when David from Powell Street won Beer of the Year. That was awesome. Here's a guy, here's a kid, here's an architect who's brewing at home at night and on weekends under a license that he got, and he wins beer of the year. I had to laugh at at the sales guys in the next room who are 
absolutely literally kicking chairs around the room because they needed the wind. They needed the metals in order to sell beer. All you got to do is make good beer. It's, I mean, it's that simple. You just need to make good beer. And it's not that difficult to make good beer. It's important that you just don't dumb the shit out of it and, and you make stuff that people want. So today, the fact that you can go out and buy yourself a Sabco and you can start turning out kegs for, like, that's a pretty sophisticated piece of equipment for $10,000. And you're in. You're done. All you need is a five-foot closet in your apartment and you can be making beer and taking it to market. You know, I, I love what's, um, you know, being done by Brassneck in Vancouver, that essentially it's just like, that's all they want to do. That's big enough. Thank you. They just have passion. They exude passion. That's what it takes. And the opportunities are absolutely unlimited. I think for some listeners, they might find it surprising that we can't really ship beer in BC across the country freely like they can in the U.S. mostly. Uh, what do we still need to do with the liquor board here? And what's your opinion on the latest ruling in Alberta, which has been kind of shutting out the BC brewers? I guess fundamentally I question why we need to ship beer across the country. I recall being in, in Philly in, in, um, in May at the Craft Brewers Conference there and uh, seeing the product of one of uh, BC brewers on a shelf that has clearly been there for a year. And I just asked myself, what good does that do anybody? On the other hand, it's been an interesting past week with the Guild and looking at the Alberta ruling and how it impacts. Although Premier Notley said that she didn't want to be lectured on that one, um, I, they made a mistake. Unfortunately, although I don't have evidence, um, it's clear to me that it's orchestrated by Big Beer. Um, and whatever Big Beer can do to, from their perspective, level the playing field and make everybody pay, in the Alberta case, a buck and a quarter a liter, um, that just gives them, that helps them hang on to their competitive advantage, which is a function of economy of scale. I think it's a mistake to not recognize the lack of economy of scale um, on small guys. Um, I was astonished that in BC, although we as craft brewers, as small scale brewers, received some tax markup incentives um, based on production a couple months ago, that the same incentives were applied to the multinationals. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, at the end of the day, what that $300,000 per multinational per year benefit really accomplish. I'm not sure that they actually needed the money. But very clearly in terms of provincial economies and local economies inducing small-scale production, we're terribly inefficient in terms of the multinationals. We tend to spend a lot of money on labor, which is all about job creation. Uh, we tend to spend a lot of money on equipment. You know, it, it doesn't cost twice as much to double the size of a tank or a fermenter or whatever. So we create investment. We create jobs. And that has to be seen as good in an economic sense. The money that we make, that we earn, that we keep at the end of the day, it stays in our town. It stays in our province. It doesn't end up in 
uh, funneled through the the corner suites of the towers in Toronto or St. Louis or Belgium or South Africa or wherever, the money stays here. Um, and I, I recognized back in the, the early 90s that it was very, very important for us to buy our food locally, um, that we needed to spend our money where it stayed here so that perhaps in February when it's bleak, people still had some coin to go out and buy a beer. When all of that gets siphoned off and ends up in Texas or wherever, it doesn't do any of us any good. So hmm. I think the opportunities are enormous. And I would encourage anybody to screw up your courage and jump. It can be done. What is your favorite beer that you make to pair with your favorite food here at the pub? I'm drinking Northwest Ale right now. And um, I, I guess that, you know, what happens over time as you drink beers, is you develop different beers. There are different flavors, different profiles that have sweet spots for you at different times, depending upon what you're doing. So here we are, sitting on the patio. It's a nice sunny afternoon at the end of July. To me, a Northwest Ale with a nice bunch of, you know, Cascades and Chinooks in it, and a nice malty base. Got some nice bite to it, and it just kind of works well with the cool breeze and the sunshine, and it's a, it's a nice thing. Asked the question in the past, I've often said that I just love having an IPA about oh, 8 o'clock in the morning off of Otter Point when he just landed the first fish. It's a nice thing. Um, I will probably never forget spending uh, a late afternoon and, and evening back, and I think it was um, 1992, uh, with the crew of the Space Shuttle Discovery up in the pub. And we tapped a beer that was made from some northern brewers that astronaut Bill Riddy had bought at a homebrew shop in, in Houston, and he put in the fridge, and he took them on, on the mission, and we got the hops, and we made a cask-conditioned beer, and we drank two casks of it that night with those people. Uh, so beer is about occasion. It's about who you're with and what you're doing and what's fun, and they become memorable in, in those kinds of ways. I really, really in, enjoy, you know, those, those kinds of uh, late evenings when you, know, you get to that, that kind of beard-out feeling and, and um, somebody pops open a sour, and you just go, yum. And it's just, like, so delicious, so palate-cleansing, so... So fun. I think, you know, one of the things that we do well here is our, our daily cask thing where we just challenge the guys to, you know, come up with a new beer five days a week. Play. Whatever. Learn. Learn, learn about the different hops. Learn what they do. Um, learn about some adjuncts and um, use that opportunity to then go on and create some things that can be fun that we can then go out and share on a broader basis. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's fun. I can't thank Paul enough for taking the time to speak with me for this episode and to the rest of the team at Spinnakers as well for looking after me while I took some time to work on editing this episode in the pub. I highly recommend you make a trip to Victoria to visit this historic Cascadian site. As mentioned in the episode, Spinnakers does have guest houses for you to book, or you can take the Inner Harbor water taxis from downtown to make it out to the pub. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cascadian Beer Podcast. 
If you want to stay up to date with the new releases of this podcast or want to support this independently produced series, you can do so on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash Cascadian Beer, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes and many other major podcast providers. For more information and more details about this podcast series, head to the website cascadian.beer. Until next time, remember, support your local.